Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and if you have your Bible, please open with me to the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts in New Testament. We're continuing on in our series this morning, uh, Sent. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. And welcome to uh, worship here at the well. We're so excited that you are here uh, with us. And before we dive into scripture this morning, I have a question uh, for you. Um, let me ask uh, what your favorite food is. Um, I want you to bring that favorite food to your mind right now. Does everyone have something? Um, and don't lie in church. Don't be pious and say you don't have a favorite food. Um, I need you to bring that favorite food. If I were to ask you right now, if I were to just pick a random person right now out of the crowd and ask you to tell me what your favorite food, I'm pretty certain that every single one of us would be able to come up with something. Something that you have in your mind. If I was to ask you what your favorite drink was, truly holy people would say coffee. Amen? Amen. Right? If I were to ask you what your favorite sports team was, or favorite place to go, or favorite movie or vacation spot, uh, let's just face it, every single one of us has favorite somethings, plain and simple. Now, it is one thing to have a favorite food or a favorite color, but I think we all understand that it's very dangerous and divisive to play favorites. Would you agree with me? To play favorites, it can be dangerous and divisive. The problem is, is that we live in a world of favorites, and favorites are played all the time in every single form and facet in our culture. I mean, our culture and society is so rife with favoritism, and this has given birth to even more sinister things such as prejudice and even racism in our culture. From celebrities to, to business peoples to, to superstar athletes to movie stars to musicians, our society is filled with favorites, and sadly, this mentality is even spilling over into the Christian culture. We disassociate from denominations and, and we don't carry our name or our brand and we look down on churches that do things differently than we do them. We pick apart other churches and, and people because they are not quote unquote right as if we are and as if God is somehow impressed with our rightness. Church, our favoritism goes far deeper than food. It's the very breeding ground for prejudice in so many forms. I found in the decade plus time that I have spent in ministry that favoritism actually leads to the devaluation of both oneself and other people. That's a harmful practice that causes individuals to underestimate the very value that God has placed on them as unique creations. And in turn, it begins to foster a, a tendency inside of us that diminishes the worth of those that we deem less capable than ourselves. Now, perhaps the most destructive aspect of favoritism is the very act of attempting to dethrone God. When favoritism takes hold in your life, it displaces God from his rightful position with individuals or others assuming the role of judge. And at its very core, favoritism represents an attempt to supplant God and exalt one's self. And in the passage that we are going to explore today, 
we're going to come across the Apostle Peter and his encounter with a profound theological truth that resonates just as powerfully in the text as it does in our contemporary context. And that truth is this, that God operates without favoritism or partiality. And we are called to emulate that very divine principle still today in this life. And it's crucial that each one of us here this morning grasp this. That God's favor is intrinsically linked to the merit and only the merit of Jesus Christ. This favor in which we have received as as children of God emanates solely from Jesus' completed work upon the cross. And we have to acknowledge that we contribute nothing to earn or merit that divine favor. It has been bestowed upon us as an unmerited gift. It underscores the very essence of, of God's grace And the very implications of this gift show us that Christianity is not a popularity contest. If you get nothing else this morning, it's not going to come to the screen, but if you get nothing else this morning, I want you to please remember this one thought. It is all level ground at the foot of the cross. All level ground. I wonder if it must be disgraceful to God that churches are still having to learn this lesson today. That there's still churches and Christians in so much hot debate and discussion over issues that are not going to matter one iota in all of eternity. We, we argue in, in churches about, you know, what color carpet is the best color carpet? Or what color walls are the best color walls? Or, or what color, you know... You name it. What color bathroom sink? What color to paint the kitchen? Is it contemporary music over hymnals? You know, what, what exactly is it? And it, there's so much division in churches over minor things that in the grand scheme of all of eternity have no matter whatsoever and whether or not you make it to heaven. It's not going to matter that we have black and gray carpet on this stage in, in, in the matter of your eternity. And as we turn into this chapter here in the book of Acts, an important chapter, we're going to take this in three large sections because there are really three points that I believe Luke is trying to make to us this morning in Acts chapter 10. And so if you would look with me at verse number one. And it says that at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household and he gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. In verse number 6, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now I want us to just stop right there. 
And the very first thing I want us to see here in Acts chapter 10 is that we come across what I would call a good guy. Cornelius, the good guy. I mean, he, he commands admiration for his, his exemplary character. He says that he feared the Lord. He helped people. He went to church. This is a man uh, th- that you would look at and say, man, I think he's got it all together. Not only that, he was a military man. He, he was a leader that oversaw a century soldier unit within a Roman legion. So he demonstrated not only leadership capability, but also discipline in his life. I mean, furthermore, this man was devout in prayer. He had a deep affection for his family, and he actively participated in religious gatherings. He made a commendable commitment to his community's welfare. I mean, his unwavering integrity here in the text and his virtuous conduct really make him a paragon of moral uprightness. However, we will notice later on in the text, that this man is truly not a follower of Jesus Christ. He's not. He's never been saved. He has no Savior here in the text yet, which really calls us to bear in mind this morning. A significant aspect that we see is that good people still need to be transformed by the gospel. Good people. Because being a virtuous individual this morning, while commendable, It does not secure your path to heaven. It doesn't. Goodness in your life, although it is it is admirable, it does not address the fundamental need of God's grace to save you. And it is essential to each one of us this morning to recognize that no one's sins are so grievous that they lie beyond the reach of God's grace. Nor is anyone righteous enough. And it's so impeccable that they can dispense with it. Cornelius here in the text, despite his devout church attendance, despite his fervent prayer life, he had not yet established a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, his spiritual hunger and his quest for answers is evident at the very attendance of religious gatherings and prayer. And it represents a, a starting point for him. However, it is crucial for us to remember that acts like attending church and prayer and charitable deeds are praiseworthy. And they, but they do not in and of themselves equate to a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And Cornelius himself recognized that essential truth. How many of you in here know a a late pastor, an author by the name of Tim Keller? Okay, a number of you. He wrote a book that I just finished reading this last week called The Prodigal God. And he said, it's going to come to the screen for you. He said, we will never find God unless he first seeks us. But we should remember that he can do so in very different ways. Sometimes God jumps on us dramatically, and we have this sharp sense of his love. Sometimes he quietly and patiently argues with us, even though we continue to turn away. How can you tell if he is working on you now, if you begin to sense your lostness and find yourself wanting to escape it? You should realize that desire is not something that you could have generated on your own. 
Many of you who know um, know me well know that I uh, became a certified biblical counselor about seven years ago or so. And over those seven years, I have, I have counseled countless individuals and they have confided in me and expressed that they have been in that very place that Tim Keller was explaining. They, they sensed that something was amiss inside of them, that there was a void that no matter what they attempted to do could never be filled. There was this unsettling feeling that was deep within them. Uh, Almost a divine prompting that was drawing them closer to God's embrace. And in each case that I have come across in those seven years, I have counseled hundreds and hundreds of people. In each one of those cases, it was almost akin to a persistent but gentle tapping on the door of each individual's heart. And it produced an unceasing question in every single one of them, when will you respond? In Cornelius' case, he needed to encounter the gospel message. And God chooses the apostle Peter, not an angel, not an angel, the, the, the messenger that already came. And this underscores another profound truth that you and I must catch here in the text. Only those, only those who have experienced the transformative power of grace can authentically convey God's message. Did you guys catch it? Only those who have experienced the transformative power of God's grace. You know, Scripture reveals to us that we have sung songs that even angels cannot fathom, for they yearn to grasp the very divine mysteries of God. It was Warren Wearsby, theologian, great theologian of our time, that said angels can deliver God's message to lost men, but they cannot preach the gospel to them because that is our privilege and our responsibility. You know, Wearsby's statement underscores a crucial theological point regarding the role of angels and humans in the dissemination of the gospel. In Christian theology, angels are often seen as messengers of God. They convey a very specific message or a specific guidance to an individual from God. And we see this over and over and over again in the Old and the New Testament. However... While angels can certainly communicate God's message, including aspects of God's plan, including aspects of God's will, angels lack the capacity to preach the gospel in the way that humans can. Because preaching the gospel church includes more than just delivering a message. It encompasses explanation. It proclaims and demonstrates the entire redemptive process of Jesus Christ. And that includes the concept of sinfulness. It includes repentance. It includes salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the one word that gets most Christians uncomfortable is it also includes the concept of sanctification. The transformation of one's life through the very indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you and I as humans, 
We have a very unique privilege and a responsibility. Why? Because we are the ones that can fully articulate and embody the gospel message. You and I are able to relate to other people on a personal and empathetic level. We're able to address the questions. We're able to address the doubts and and even the needs because we're able to testify by our own experiences of God's grace and redemption. Do you guys remember last week I said that God allows for you and I to walk through affliction as Paul said in the book of 1st and in 2nd Corinthians it's articulated that we are given comfort so that we can in turn give comfort to others who, who need that same comfort in which we received. And so you and I preach the gospel in a way that angels cannot And it makes it not only a message of salvation, but through us it makes it a message of relationship and hope and transformation. And so the active role that humans play in sharing the gospel and in fulfilling the great commission as given by Jesus in in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, teaching them all to observe what I have commanded you. Giving them something to follow. And so that task is uniquely entrusted to all of humanity. Every single one of us. And it highlights the very importance of our involvement in evangelism and discipleship. And so for those of you who are a believer in here this morning, God did not intend for you to sit on the sidelines in this life as a Christian. God intended to employ you as a vessel to share the very good news just as he's about to do with Peter to Cornelius. But there's a problem that we're going to see in the text. There's a problem with Peter and like many of us, It's an obedience problem. So if you would pick up with me in verse number 9. He says, In the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. And he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it, there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men. And said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reasoning, or what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel and to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. 
And so he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now I want us to stop right there, because I want us to see now in the text, not a good guy, but a proud Christian. A proud Christian. Because God has already initiated a transformative work and process in the very life of Peter. This journey began towards the end of of chapter 9, when in a Gentile region, God worked through Peter to perform miracles. Additionally, I want you to notice at the very front of this text, it said that Peter was staying with a tanner. And that holds significant symbolism for us today because tanners were considered social outcasts. They were viewed as rough individuals and they were deemed ceremonially unclean by the priests. And so consequently, the tanner faced limitations in fully participating in worship activities. I mean, in Jewish tradition, if a young woman discovered that her prospective husband was a tanner, she would annul the marriage commitment and go in a different direction. And so the fact that Peter is staying in a tanner's house was not coincidental. In the text, as as Peter prays, while he's awaiting a meal, a curious mention of pigs in a blanket appeared. Surprisingly making its way into biblical cuisine for the very first time. However, the essence of this scene went beyond mere food. It was about faithfulness. God was orchestrating a a change. It was a, a redirection in Peter's life as we explored in our previous discussion. And this, this very episode that we see here addresses faithfulness rather than dietary choices. God was realigning the perspective a little bit. And then all of a sudden we see a fundamental challenge that arises here in the text. You and I often find ourselves willing to serve Jesus when it pertains to people that we naturally like. Right? They're the people that we get along with the people that we share a common interest with, and we seemingly connect effortlessly to, those are the people that we're willing to serve Jesus for. Our inclination is to associate primarily with individuals of our own culture, or our own age, or our own fill-in-the-blank for whatever it is for you. And so then you ask, is there a challenge here then for us? Because the the challenge doesn't lie in the gospel's ability to transform lives of all people because the gospel's power remains unaltered. Instead, the, the challenge lies with Christians that attempt to limit the gospel's reach by only giving it to a select few. But a, a genuine revelation of one's prejudices and pride often occurs when you and I attempt to share the gospel with someone with whom we seemingly share no common ground with. It begins to um, surface when endeavoring to worship with a culture that's entirely outside of your comfort zone. When, when the music is significantly different and then the people bear a, a different ethnicity And the customs diverge drastically from anything that you've previously encountered. 
I want you to allow me this morning to just emphasize this point. When we are firmly grounded in Christ, when we understand that our identity is in Christ, we become less easily offended. In fact, we become less hypersensitive to our own feelings when we realize that our identity is is founded in Christ and Christ alone. And then racism and anti-Semitism and chauvinism and sexism and ageism and feminism and, and bigotry and whatever other word our culture wants to use this week, none of those words or thought processes have any roots in the Bible whatsoever because Jesus died for everyone. And those cultural and social normatives are rooted in the very hearts and minds of people who are filled with pridefulness. This is not a work of God. We have to remember that the Bible shows us over and over and over again that God does not play favorites. He doesn't. No race, no ethnic race in this world is more important than another. No one. No socioeconomic status in a family makes you better or less than somebody else. Jesus died for you. He died for your neighbor. He died for the boss that you hate that makes you so angry. He died for the wayward child. He died for the aunt and uncle and the mom and dad who are living in the wrong place. He died for the individual who recognizes himself as homosexual or transgender or bi or whatever other name that you want to tag to it. He died for all of those people. Does it make the lifestyle choices right? No, but he still died for them. And that means that they are able to receive the very same grace of God that you and I receive every single day. God is so faithfully available to save anyone who calls upon his name for salvation. And in Peter's experience, this powerful truth begins to unfold before us that salvation is extended to all because Jesus is Lord over all. I mean, Paul himself wrote to the church at Rome and he said, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? And Paul answered his own question and he said, yes, yes, of Gentiles also. And so it's crucial for you and I to bear in mind that God's character is impartial. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Scripture emphasizes to us in the Old Testament that God loves the stranger and he instructs his people to do the same, all the while reminding them that they were once strangers in Egypt. Go a little bit further and you get to Second Chronicles in chapter 19. We see a reinforcement of that same thought process and it tells us that God shows no partiality. And so Peter is on the verge of encountering that profound truth in a new way. And I want you to pick back up in the text with me in verse number 24. And it says, And on the following day they entered Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close family friends. 
And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons that were gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said in verse 34, days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered by, uh, before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once and you have some... You have been kind enough to come, and now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Verse 35. Verse 35 here. Says that in every nation... And that Greek word nation is the word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnicity or ethnic. And it emphasizes that the very gospel of Jesus Christ transcends every single boundary that we in our humanness attempt to place. It underscores the very profound truth that Jesus through his sacrifice atoned for the sins of all of humanity. Regardless of their origin, regardless of their background, regardless of their appearance. And beneath this scriptural message lies another fundamental lesson that every Christian must embrace. Is that prejudice in any form diminishes the very inherent worth of individuals that were created in the image of God. The very sanctity of human life. Bearing the image of God should be the Christian's guiding principle. And so you're like, well then pastor, how come it's not that way? Because sin obstructs the divine reflection. Sin obstructs making prejudice and pride and, and racism particularly odious. I mean, they obstruct the very transformative power of the gospel and they act as accelerants that intensify the very impacts of sin and they blind us to the reality that every single soul was formed in God's image and every single soul needs redemption. The gospel was embraced in the early church. And when it was embraced in the early church, it transfigured lives and it enabled them to radiate God's glory and grace to other people. And church, that same exact transfiguration or, or transformation can occur in your life today if you embrace the entirety of the gospel. The same exact change enabling you and I to radiate God's glory and grace. But it only comes when you and I genuinely are transformed by the gospel. 
when we experience a profound shift in our perspective. When that happens, we, we begin to perceive each individual that we encounter through the lens of God's grace. And we're constantly reminded of our own past state before salvation. There's a, a transformation that does occur through the gospel and it brings a true game changer to your life. And it makes us perceive ourselves and others completely or radically different. And so I want you to see the last point this morning is that there's a game-changing moment that happens in the text. If you would pick back up with me in verse 37. Luke continues writing and he says that you yourself know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To tell him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And they believe in the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? We've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. There's a a brilliant game-changing moment that we see in the text that the gospel message encompasses the entire redemptive narrative. From the very remarkable ministry of Jesus to the sacrificial crucifixion and then the triumphal resurrection. Ultimately establishing Jesus as the only and perfect righteous judge. And this reality is nothing short of a theological explosion in the Bible. And here is why it's profoundly awe-inspiring. Because you and I now stand as recipients of that same gospel. We, the Gentiles, have witnessed the enduring impact of the gospel message as it has traversed through time and space and it it reaches all the way across right here to us in this room amongst a congregation of Gentile believers. Ephesians 4 4 through 6, beautifully articulates that union. It's going to come to the screen for you. It says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And it highlights the essential oneness that transcends divisions. And it reveals those profound truths that the gospel unites humanity under the banner of God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 echoed that same exact unity, emphasizing that God in Christ reconciled the entire world unto himself, mercifully withholding the consequence of our sins. And now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been entrusted with the very precious word that makes us his ambassador of grace. And the gospel narrative for you here this morning, it simplifies the complexity of our human condition. There is one problem in this world, and it is sin. There is one Savior in this world, and it is Jesus Christ. There is one race in this world, and it's the human race. There is one hope in this world, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And there is one calling for any person who follows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that is to evangelize and disciple. It is vital for you before you walk out of this room today to recognize that the mission of the church extends far beyond merely assembling right here in this building as a congregation. Because God through his son already accomplished that by uniting Gentiles and Jews at the very table of grace. And our, our mission, the, the bigger picture for us as a church is crystal clear. Go make disciples of all nations. And as we reflect upon those profound truths that we see in the text this morning, I present you with a tangible challenge from Scripture. If you are here this morning, if you're listening online, You have to make a commitment in this life to share the glorious gospel of unity and reconciliation with a world that is in desperate need of hope. Whether it's by reaching out to the neighbor that's lived next to you for 25 years or the new co-worker that started at your job last week. We understand and have experienced the gospel reaching the farthest corners of the earth through our missionaries but you and I still have to embrace the calling of being an ambassador of reconciliation right here in Ionia. Because you and I are the very living embodiment of the gospel. You and I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as followers of Christ, which means that we have the very power of the transformative grace that God gives. And so will you make the commitment this morning to do whatever it is that you can to share the gospel with the people around you. And you may be sitting in here right now and you're like, Pastor, I would be deathly afraid to share the gospel with somebody. If that's you, come talk to me because I want to help you with that. I, I know there are, there are at least a dozen plus people in this room that 
If I said, we're going to leave right now and we're going to Walmart to share the gospel, I, I would have a trail of people that would be following me out that door ready to go. But then there are people that I, I, I wouldn't even know what to say. I wouldn't even know where to start. We can help you with that. We have people here in our church congregation that can help equip you to be able to share the gospel. And if that's you, I want you to come and see me after, after service. I'll wait right down here in the front for you. But church, let's commit to sharing the gospel because here at the well, we want to connect people to Christ in every single moment, every ordinary moment, we want to connect them to Christ. And so will you join, will you join the calling? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for this day that you have given to us. We thank you for the truth here that is found in your word and the challenge that comes with it. The challenge to, to not show uh, partiality, but Lord, that we would recognize that every single person that we encounter needs hope, that needs your loving grace to fill them, to change them. And so Lord, I ask that you would give us not only boldness and liberty to speak in those situations, but I would ask you to give us your eyes so that we can see people the way that you do. And dare I even ask, Lord, that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. Heavenly, Fa Heavenly Father, give us your strength. Give us courage as we depart from here. Use us as, as, willing, as willing vessels because we have recognized our own depravity and our need for you and, and how great and powerful your grace and your forgiveness and your love and mercy is. And so, Lord, let us be an extension uh, of, of your calling to, to bring people to reconciliation. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.